Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Leela Corman. Her new book, I'm going to totally mispronounce it, but I'm going to try my darnest, is uh, Unterzaken uh, from Shokan. Very good. <laughs> I, I did an okay job on that. You did a pretty good job. <laughs> uh, as well as uh, Subway Series, which came out, I guess, what, seven, ten years ago? Was it seven? Ten. Years? ten I believe years it, ago. ten years ago. Wow. Is that your like closest previous collection of work yeah yeah that's a while weird that's a long time 
It must be odd, like, working on something for so long and, like, not having something hmm. out to reflect what's been going on. Well, I was also doing a lot of commission illustration work at the time, all the way through. So, it to me, it just feels like my life, you know, I'm just working and now I have this thing that I finished. It's definitely good to have it finished. How does that... for? Were you working on it for an extended amount of time, or was it a project that, like, you've been thinking about wanting to do a certain thing and kind of ruminating and eventually coming to this conclusion as a book that you wanted to do? Uh, it started out that way. It actually grew out of an idea that wasn't working. Um, where I, I had this kind of vague idea, actually, since before I even did my Xeric application work, you know, so somewhere around 1998, I started thinking about this kind of vague idea about a story about a showgirl, and I would end it right before the war started, and it would be in, taking place in Poland. And I just could never get it off the ground. And finally, I figured out that I wasn't interested in anything about Poland or the lead up to World War II. I was sick of it. You know, it's family history. I'm done. And other people have done that better anyway. There's no need to go back to that territory for me because I don't have anything interesting to say about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then that sort of went to bed for a while, just back burner, because I, I was working on, you know, I did, did Queen's Day as my senior illustration project at Massachusetts College of Art, and then I did Subway Series right when we first moved back to New York City, and I guess it arose out of kind of being back in the city I'd grown up in and reflecting on my adolescence and wanting to sort of fictionalize some of that stuff. And then when that came out, I really wasn't happy with it. Um, so I, I just took a giant step back from comics uh, and it happened to coincide with my first belly dance class. <laughs> I fell really in love with belly dance. Started doing that a lot. Got to the pro level with it and at the same time was working as an illustrator uh, to pay the bills. So I really like... I didn't go back to this idea for Untersachen until, well, it's funny. I mean, I make it sound like it was a really long time, but actually the idea for this came a year after Subway Series came out. And the first story idea came pretty soon after, and it ran in Scheherazade. So I, I was sort of doing little practice runs for a while mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what the, the art style would look like because I didn't want it to look like my previous books. Um, and then once I sort of nailed down what the art was going to look like and I started to really think about it, now we're talking a few years, right? And, you know, I was sort of kicking this around. I knew who the characters were, but I didn't really know what the story was yet. And at that point, I was having coffee with Lauren McCubbin, and she said, do you have an agent? I said, uh, no. And she said, well, you need an agent because you need a real publisher because this is, sounds like a really big project and you shouldn't be entrusting this to a comics publisher. And I realized she was right. I had no interest in working with a comics publisher for the amount of work I was going to do. It wasn't going to be enough return in any way. So I, and I don't just mean financially, I mean in every way, like it's just not going to work. So, so, you know, I realized I want a real book publisher. I want some muscle behind this. And, uh, she hooked me up with her agent, and her agent got me on track, my, now my agent, got me on track with making a real proposal. So then, at that point, I had the initial idea in 2003, got the proposal in at the end of 2007, signed the deal Thanksgiving 2007, started working on it in 2008, for real. 
And I will say that that of the 20 pages that went into the proposal, gosh, I think like 11 of them got scrapped or something. Was it just a larger book or is it just kind of retooling the story both. idea? Both, both. Mostly retooling. Realizing that those early scenes didn't lead me in a direction I wanted to go. When you talk about not wanting to be published by a comics publisher, are you, when you're looking at the work as itself as a whole, are you kind of, also the way you're telling the story, kind of trying to f go within like a different direction that may not be like stereotypical, and I'm trying to word this right, like kind of straight comics narrative approach, or are you trying to like fit into more of a kind of, kind of fictional narrative, like because you you have you're working more in the kind of jumping around in time um, as far as back and forth with the characters in the past, and I was curious like putting that story together with this other idea in mind of how it's being published. Uh, if I understand your question correctly, which I probably don't understand the own question. <laughs> <it's not. laughs> well, it sounds like you're asking me if I thought I would have less artistic freedom with a comics publisher. No, that's not not necessarily actually the opposite. Um, I'm wondering, were you kind of going in a certain direction with the work that, because you said it wouldn't get kind of carried enough, um, like, was there some ambitions with it, maybe? Well, the first ambition is always to make a living. Not, not obviously, like, not to, not to say that I was thinking, this will sell, because I don't think like that, and I'm really bad at that more that I wanted to be paid properly for my work. For the mm -hmm. amount of work this was going to take to do, I needed somebody with a bigger budget. So I'll just be really honest about that. Um, I think also you need a really committed publisher who's going to put publicity muscle behind your work. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to work with people who were really going to edit me. And and basically I just wanted to be in on, on the book side of things rather than the comic side of things which you know I don't mean to disrespect comics publishers I think they do a lot of great work and they're necessary we really need them but it didn't feel like a good fit for me and I didn't feel like I would get noticed I didn't feel like I would I would be taken seriously with the proposal which is probably just my problem but I felt like if we had approached any of the the indie publishers, it probably would have just ended up on a pile of other people's proposals. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're one of 200 people, that I'm just, I'm just guessing on the number, who send a proposal to a publisher, as opposed to one of maybe three people who send a graphic novel proposal to a publisher that almost never does them, you know? How, was, one... how was the reception from Shokin? Um with the book. Uh, I will correct your pronunciation on that. It's okay. shocking. Actually. Shocking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, shocking, shocking found me. Um, I had a paid run in a magazine called Lilith, and then Alti Carper from Shocking um, emailed me and asked me what this project... She said, it looks like this is a part of a bigger project. What is it? I'm really interested. Uh, so the proposal, I don't know who else my agent sent the proposal to, but Alti was definitely one of them, and Alti bit right away and brought me in for a meeting. Um, and, you know, we hit it off immediately. They liked the project, and they took it on. And I couldn't have a more perfect fit. Nice. Um, so tell me about 
kind of the start of the project and kind of what you had in mind? Um, like, were there specific kind of issues that you wanted to address with it? Because you're talking about, like, you didn't want to just do this stereotypical talk about, not stereotypical, but work that already been tried upon. Um, what was something you wanted to introduce to the dialogue with your um, Well, to be really blunt, initially, I wanted to talk about abortion. I wanted to talk about the, the consequences of not having a choice. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the book to be only about that, but that's where I started from. Because the first story that I ever drew, um, the thing that ran in Scheherazade, was what became the first, not really chapter, but the first couple of, the first scene or two of the finished book, where Fania sees the woman hemorrhaging on the street, and that's how she meets her mentor, Bronya, the midwife and abortionist. Um, because I knew what women's lives were like at the time, and in that environment specifically, um, I had done a lot of research about Margaret Sanger, and while I did not want to do something, I didn't want to do a, a comic version of the life of Margaret Sanger, I will leave that kind of thing to other people. I always need to do something fictional. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that that would be, I think that would be kind of dry in my hands. I don't think I do a good job. So, and it would read like a polemic, you know, and that's, I'm not a polemicist either. Uh, so that was one thing, but of course, uh, you know, what happened initially, uh, I've told this story now in condensed, in a condensed way, a lot. Um, I was sitting in the auditorium of the 63rd Street Y in Manhattan, waiting for a Kim Deitch lecture to begin. And I went to summer camp at this Y, and I remember having to go to assembly every morning in this Y and sing YMCA, and the other day I met a bear and all that stuff. Um, and I remember thinking that this auditorium was huge, and when I went back for this Kim Deitch event, it was tiny. That's neither here nor there. So I, I was sitting there waiting for the lecture to begin, and I was just doodling on a napkin, and Fanya appeared. And along with her appeared basically her entire family structure and a little bit of their character structure. So Fania, her twin sister, her mother, her father, the corset shop, um, the two trajectories of the girls, that was immediate. That one becomes the apprentice to the neighborhood abortionist and the other becomes a showgirl. And everything else flowed from that. So I, I usually begin with character. Character first, place second, story, then I have to work on really, really hard. Story is the hardest. <laughs> the, it seems like along with the abortion subject, you're kind of tied in with um, this kind of era feminine identity and also this kind of the sexual liberation uh, or not necessarily sexual liberation because we're not at that point yet but still oh we're past that point yeah I mean this is after Emma Goldman mm -hmm. I'm just thinking just in the in the 60s context where women had more kind of because there's more contraceptive. Yeah, and in the 60s you also had incidences where, well, I'm not even going to get deeply into it, but one, one incident I read about where a woman was speaking at a political rally and some of the guys in the audience started screaming, take her off the stage and fuck her. Jeez. So, you know, I mean, the 60s were not exactly paradise for women either. Mm -hmm. I was more referring to specifically the, the having the more power of choice of because there was the pill... There was the pill. There was a loosening of, of judgment. You mm -hmm. know, 
um, to some extent, although yes and no, it really depends on where you were. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like every generation thinks they invented everything, and uh, <laughs> human nature really doesn't change. <laughs> this is one thing you learn when you study history a lot. Human nature never changes. The well, costumes change. It's funny, like, thinking about, like, looking at these point in times where we have these kind of movements and then thinking currently where you can see just, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, so was that a particular point in time you'd always been interested in, in research, or was it something that drew out of the particular subject matter? You know what? It's funny. Um... I get asked that a lot. It came from the characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when the characters appeared, that was their time period. And it didn't have anything to do with being interested in it in previous to that. You know, I mean, I'm interested in all kinds of eras of history and different places, but um, the characters told me where they lived and when. And I had to follow up on that with research. So that drove me to studying that time period a lot more. And, you know, I mean, to a lesser extent, I think what played into it a little is that I'm a native New Yorker. I love New York City. I especially love New York City history. Mm -hmm. um, I could probably do just about any period of New York City history, and it would be interesting. But I guess because of the, the nexus of the characters' needs and the place that happened to be the right time because it really is sort of the cusp of what we think of as modernity, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the beginning of the 20th century and then look how much things change just even visually between how people live between 1909, the beginning of the book and the mid 20s or whenever. I never really am clear about when the final portion of the book takes place. But look, look at just Esther's trajectory, for example, right? She She's born probably in the back room of this tenement apartment and she ends up living in a penthouse in a high-rise apartment building and driving a car and well being driven around in a car and living in what was then the absolute height of modernity
listening to Inksets on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, my guest this week is Lila Corman. We've been talking about her latest book, uh, Unt- Unterzaken. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm probably pronouncing it differently each time I say it. That's okay. <laughs> uh, we were just talking about the, uh, the kind of idea of setting the story in kind of this place in modernity. Um, one thing I'm curious about with that is you have uh, the parallel story of the the father of the the twins, and and I'm wondering how that plays as a kind of dichotomy in a way of recent history towards what they are that is completely different from their New York experience. Well, I mean, I think if you look back into the family history of most immigrants from that part of the world that's the kind of story that you find Mm -hmm. it's just it's very common and there are versions of it that are more Jewish and there are versions of it that are more Gentile you know so they would have faced different problems but well any immigrant group you Mm -hmm. know there's going to be certain certain stories that attach Uh, so if you're father came here from Russia in the late 19th century, there's certain problems that he had to face there, certain things he was running from. Uh, but what I started to realize as I was working on it, and one, one of the things that's really important to me uh, as an artist is dealing with the happy accident. You know, this is something Brian Eno talks about a lot too, um, and he's really kind of the master of the happy accident, actually. Uh, when you write a story, and I'm sure that this is just a common experience when you're writing any story, threads begin to weave themselves in such a way that you suddenly have this aha moment, like after you've been working on it for a really long time, you know? And I realize, oh, well, you know, so a lot of this subtext here is about the way um, problems will continue to rear their heads within a family even if they aren't ever discussed verbally. The girls have no idea what happened to their father. They don't really know their mother's story either. But this the same kind of issues keep coming up to be resolved again and again. It's like they're carrying the karmic burden. I'm, I'm really interested in stories that can do that without banging you over the head with it. <laughs> Do you weave in any of your own personal family biography into the into that history? No, not really. I mean, 
personal biography, no. Um, some personality traits here and there, occasionally some physiological traits, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, my um, my family came here later, actually. Do you feel? And they didn't go to the Lower East Side. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, didn't I was just going to say nobody in my family lived on the Lower East Side at all. <laughs> they, by- they bypassed it completely. <sighs> Is uh, New York's pretty etched into who you are, isn't it? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How is the choice? No place else is normal, really. <laughs> the rest of you are just living in some strange theme park, fantasy land, including me now. <laughs> I live in a theme park with birds and dirt. <laughs> There's something interesting about like going from like extreme, like busyness, urban to 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 not urban to being in this like kind of picturesque setting in the middle yeah I, if it's a transition you were ready to make it's awesome mm-hmm. I, I I recommend it <laughs> it's great <laughs> I was it Andre Kudrescu who said when you get to a certain age you need more trees than people <laughs> or you need I'm, I'm misquoting him something like you need 100 trees for every person whereas when you were young you needed one one tree for every hundred people. I'm paraphrasing poorly, but that's the idea. I like that. I just recently yep. moved it from the busy neighborhood in the city out to the uh, not so busy, and it's been quite the uh, just the interesting experience of myself. Nothing to be compared with Florida to New York, but <laughs> it's a big difference, though. It's, it, it really is. It is. It's it's odd. I'm still getting used to it. Um, so. When you working for a book publisher, did you kind of have to have the book done and then they put it into the future catalog or was there a quick turnaround? Um, between delivery and printing? Yeah. Yeah, there was pretty quick turnaround once the book was finished, yeah. Now you mentioned a lot of uh, editorial support. What were some of the things that came about from that? Well, ultimately... Not as much as I thought I was going to need, um, in part because I live with a really great editor. Tom is really... Um... Are you still there, by the yep. way? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. just making sure. Uh, <laughs> I think I have too many apps on this iPad, <laughs> and so I hope it's not going to cut off Skype anytime soon. Um, I still don't understand how much downloading stuff in the background affects other things. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does. Um, so Tom Hart, my husband is a really amazing editor and pretty ruthless, you know. I don't get any quarter for being his wife, nor would I want any. So he was one of my readers, and my other readers were Jason Little and Nick Bertozzi and Lauren Weinstein, and all of them had really helpful comments. Um, So before the draft even got to my editor, all those people had seen it and marked it up. Um, And I'm a pretty ruthless editor myself, about certain things. A lot of stuff ended up gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time it got to my editor, she only had a few comments, really, and they were pretty helpful. Uh, but it was just good to have other people's eyes on it, you know? I'm always curious about kind of for folks within that creative process and, like, how to bounce work off your peers and how that helps or hinders. Well, yeah. depends on the peers. <laughs> Just, just choose them carefully. I mean, if you know that this person is a really good objective reader 
um, isn't going to spare your feelings, isn't, isn't going to think they can't say something because they're afraid of hurting your feelings, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. um, then they're probably a good person to look at your work. Now, one of the things you're doing in the book is you use um, a lot of Greek myth kind of as stories being told within the story. And I'm curious about that choice. Like, it seems like you're kind of touching on some classical traditions as well. Well, like a lot of things, what looks like a conscious choice um, started out as just a small little idea that, and then threaded itself without my trying to mm-hmm. uh, manipulate it through the book. So it was very natural. And it's only looking back that I kind of understand it a little better. But I, I love the Odyssey. It's one of my favorite works of literature. I can go back to it again and again. I think it contains everything. Every every genre of, of novel is contained within the Odyssey, every story. I'm really fascinated, personally, just from my own kind of reading and studying things and my own education, just how there exists these like narrative traditions and how nothing really exists in a vacuum. No. And just the, how... The... Go ahead. Well, just how everything really does touch upon each other, and there's like, there, there's a place like you can kind of see these lines going and kind of where they're bouncing in and out in written work. The other great thing is that the Greeks knew everything about storytelling, about the human condition. So if you can think of it, chances are that story exists somewhere in, in Greek literature and you can go and find it. Now, when I say that, I make myself sound like I'm an expert on Greek literature, and I'm totally not. But I'm just always amazed whenever I do dip into it at how rich it is. And I also should say that um, for there was a point in 2008 or so when I was working on this book when I was also, 2008, 2009, I was tentatively collaborating with a fellow dancer on a project based on the Demeter-Persephone myth. Okay. And, uh, and so that started to kind of creep into my work as I, I started to read the Persephone story for the first time as an adult, and I realized that that story operates on many levels. So on one level, it's a just-so story. How, how did this come to be? Why do we have winter? You know, it's a fable that explains why we have seasons. On another level... Um, and this is the Robert Graves kind of interpretation that I got out of reading his his work. It's a story about, uh, it's an allegory for a matriarchal tribe being taken over by a patriarchal one that's more powerful mm-hmm. and puts its gods in place. On yet another level, it's a story of a girl being abducted and raped. And mm-hmm. then she's got to marry her rapist, which is what happens to Persephone. Mm-hmm. And then there's one more aspect of it. This recurs in a lot of mythology. Don't eat the food in the spirit world. (laughs) You'll be screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Is that kind of touching on the the ideas of uh, the seduction in, in, in your book? Well, you make it sound like it's all planned in advance. It's not. I mean, if that's what, if it all connects after the fact in that way, then yeah, that's good. Then I did the right thing as a storyteller. But you know, that's that's what you hope for. Yeah. When you're writing, that's not where you start because if you start trying to have all this stuff in advance, if you start with this grand plan and then you try to manipulate it all into the story, then it doesn't work. You'll end up writing something terrible. 
So you, you, you let the characters lead you. You, you. you do the research. You do the work. You sit and let the story flow. And then you prune out the parts that aren't working or that are just going to lead you in the wrong direction. You know, like gardening, right? You prune off the stuff that's too much. I'm a baby gardener, by the way. I'm learning a lot. Um, anyway, you do a lot of pruning and editing, and then you're left with something, mm-hmm. right? And then th- patterns begin to emerge, and, and then you're surprised. Your own work will surprise you. Where you're talking about the research, and I'm wondering, what is the research then? Like, how far do you want to delve into the research for this point in time? Well, uh, a good friend of mine gave me a really good piece of advice early on. She said, you know you're done with your research when you start just seeing the same facts over and over again, when you start reading things you've read before a lot. Um, So I have an idea, and then I have to ask myself, not did it happen, but could it have happened? So let's say I want to set a story in a theater that's also a brothel. This is where I actually took a little bit of liberty, so I'm cheating a little by telling you this story. But by using this as an example, rather. But not completely. So then I do my research, right? Then I start poking around and I start to ask questions. Did this thing exist? So I asked a friend of mine who's a vaudeville historian, and he said, well, you know, prostitutes would ply their trade up in the balconies a lot at theaters, but I don't think there was a brothel that was also a theater in New York City. However, I did find pictorial evidence of one out west, and, and actually said brothel theater, <laughs> uh, like in the Dakotas or something, mm-hmm. uh, some mining territory. I thought, okay, well, fine. So it did exist somewhere, and you know, any big city is full of layers. There's all kinds of stuff just buried, hidden behind closed doors, behind nondescript facades. Are all sorts of worlds that you couldn't even dream of. Um, for other things, it's more mundane. I have to research the fashion, um, research the architecture, and this can lead you down some really funny search parameter pathways <laughs> or put you in weird places. Like uh, one, one thing I learned from Tom early on, actually, is that to take a lot of photographs, and they really shouldn't even be good photographs. You know, you have to throw the idea of taking professional looking or even like decent photos out the window and just go around snapping crappy snapshots of things that you need Mm -hmm. types of shadows or in my case um, I took a lot of pictures of cornices and rotting fire escapes and doorways that I liked old signage Uh, now in this matter I was also very lucky because the Lower East Side at that time was one of the most photographed neighborhoods in America because it was so um Populous. It was a magnet for social reformers, and also at the time, just because of immigration patterns, there had been an earlier influx of German Jews who came in, and they were wealthier, uh, and they lived in a different part of town. And some of them came into the Lower East Side to sort of civilize their Eastern sisters and brothers. You know, we were sort of the the look down upon, you know, the, the ghetto Jews. So <laughs> <laughs> um, we were superstitious, religious. We came from the backwaters, you know. 
culturally we were kind of different. So, mm-hmm. so there's that aspect of it. So there's tons of photographs and even sound recordings and early film. Um, and obviously lots of ephemera, you know, lots of posters, lots of, lots of all kinds of things. Uh, so the research is really everything, every direction. And then at a certain point, you've got to let some of it go. Uh, I, I always think about something Myla Goldberg told me. When in doubt, make stuff up. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder about that, like how to kind of jump out of the trappings of having to be completely historical accurate, because it's not like you're um, doing a work like, say, like a Joe Sacco work where you're trying to represent a certain point in Palestine and a certain point in time. Right. It's more you're evoking an idea of a time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so in a work of journalism, you absolutely have a responsibility to be factual 200%. Mm-hmm. You do not get to make stuff up. Absolutely not. If you do that, you should lose your job. Um, when you're writing fiction, you're writing fiction. And there's a certain degree of historical accuracy that really must be observed. If you want to convince people that they're in 1923, you've got to observe it. You know, I was careful about my costuming too. I made sure, like, all right, if I'm trying to depict 1922, I got to look at this book and make sure that this dress isn't from 1926. I was careful with stuff like that. Um, but honestly, it's not that hard. You know, I mean, you just do the research. It's not that difficult. There's, there's a plenty of precedent for it, you know? But I wonder if somebody, if you could travel back in time and show somebody from any of those time periods my book, what would they point out as being inaccurate? You know, you always hear about people carping about, the, say, like Mad Men. I watched Mad Men the other night with my mom, who'd never seen it before. Um, and her comments were that plaid that that female character is wearing is too masculine and would never have been worn in that time period. That dress is too low cut. You would never show that much cleavage in 1966, and those people would never go to an Edward Albee play. <laughs> um, now, I have to say, I, I then went on the Tom and Lorenzo, um, do you know this blog, TomandLorenzo.com? It used no. to be called Project Run Gay. Um, they write these great essays about Mad Men every week, and then they do a companion essay that just analyzes the semiotics of the clothing and the set design. Wonderful. Mm. Mostly the clothes. Yeah. So I, I asked people a question. I said, you know, so my mom says this plaid is not accurate and this neither is this gown. And a bunch of people piped in. One person said, I had that I had a dress in that plaid in that time period. So it was out there. Yeah. Now my mother does have the authority from which to speak because her father was a tailor and and he made all of the latest styles um, in exactly that era. However, memory's not always that clear. <laughs> Um, so I guess, I'm sorry, we sort of got away from your question, which I think you were asking about taking liberties. Like, at what point do you decide to just serve the story instead of the accurate research? Yeah, well, I think I think I was kind of more going towards um, evoking an idea of a point in time, not necessarily representing a point in time. Yes. Now, the thing is, I still think you have to back that up with 90 to 95% at, the, at least accurate research, because... If you slack on that, you run the risk of working from uh, faulty memories and received wisdom. Mm-hmm. 
So we have this idea that the 1920s had these kinds of women called flappers and they had bobbed hair and they wore drop-waisted dresses. Well, what does that really mean? What did the hair actually look like? What did the dresses actually look like? And I'm just talking about the clothes here now, but, but also, you know, we have this idea that in 19th century Russia under the Tsar, we know that Jewish boys were conscripted and forced into army service, and that meant they'd never see their families again. That effectively meant taking your child away forever. However, I couldn't do that in this story because it took place too late in the century, so I had to do my research and readjust my story um, so that their father was not running away from conscription because conscription didn't exist at that point anymore. What's the importance of picking Russia? Um, <clears throat> as... It just happens to be where most many Ashkenazi come from. Don't forget that historical Russia, Poland, those borders as we know them now, mm -hmm. weren't the same back then. No. So it's just kind of general Eastern Europe pale of settlement. Yeah. But it had to be under the territory of the Tsar because it had to have that kind of pogrom. It had to have Cossacks in it because that was just how the story went. And it makes sense, you know, I, I did study the westward migration of Jews in that time period. Um, there were various routes that they took to get out of Russia and to ports where they could then make their way to the U.S. or Canada. And, and so going through Poland was, you know, that would have been a stop on the way for a lot of people. Tell me about... about um... Jewish and Yiddish culture itself and kind of the importance of being able to like represent it in this context. You know, what's so funny is um, I feel like I, I'm not at all a worthy spokesperson for either of those things, but I, I guess, you know, it's certainly valid to ask me that. Um, <laughs> I'm just struggling with how to answer that without hurting anyone. Um, <laughs> I'm a terrible Jew. I, I'm just going to put that right out there. I'm not religious at all. Um, but I mean the the idea that to me I, I don't even see it as a religious identity as much as just well thank you because it's not it's an ethnic identity mm -hmm. you know it is and and especially well I say especially my kind of Yiddish kite but I'm sure that there is Sephardim who would say the same thing you know um, it's a cultural identity you there yep okay good yeah, I'm just making I just... sure. I have no idea when this machine is going to kick me off again. Um, so, you know, I love Yiddish culture. Um, I feel like I just grew up just hanging on to the tiniest thread of it because it's, you know, my grandparents came here after the war and spoke Yiddish around me all the time, but I never learned to speak it. Uh, however, it's very much uh, a part of my identity in ways that I, I have trouble even articulating. Um, mm -hmm. Many other things are part of my identity, too. I, I have trouble identifying with only one thing. That would be very dull. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing that goes to kind of frame someone. Like, this is the parts that go into it. And it's, you know, yeah. Does that make sense? Well, in a sense, it was easy to, um, it, it made it, easier to take on this very big project because at least I was working from a base that was familiar, you know? My next couple of projects aren't as familiar, at least not linguistically, culturally, you know? Um, so you got to start a little closer to home. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Do it's you, not all. Do you feel like this kind of pushed you ambitiously, like, from from your previous book, um, from Subway Series, towards where you want to evolve as a storyteller? Definitely. Um, it, it taught me that I'm not interested in telling stories about the present time period, at least right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in in telling stories that take place in earlier times and different parts of, of history. Uh, and I, it's funny, you know, I hate the genre of historical novels. I really hate that genre, but I love really good storytelling about real human beings set in time periods that we've mythologized. So some people have this very romantic view of life on the Lower East Side, which is completely baffling to me because there was nothing romantic about it. I'm sure there were many wonderful things about it, but it was not romantic. And if you read contemporary accounts of living there, especially letters home written by immigrants, they're horrified by it. Mm-hmm. It's so dirty. It's so crowded. It's so loud. Nobody has manners anymore. They've forgotten God here. I can't get my house clean. There's dust everywhere. There's the roaches. I work seven days a week. I can't. I can't keep the Sabbath holy. You know, all these these horrified letters from people. Right? It was not a sepia toned, pleasant, romantic time at all. There's no cool Ken Burns jazz playing in the background. And... Nope. No cool <laughs> Ken Burns jazz. Listen, there's no municipal trash pickup. You ever been to New York in the summer? Uh, September. <laughs> that was the closest. Good enough. I actually can't remember when um, when garbage collection became <laughs> more, more reliable. Uh, it's been a while since I did that part of the research. But there's a whole chapter on it in Luke Sant's Low Life, which is a really good book if you want to know about New York City history. Um, Okay, I'm testing. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Sometimes I hear this ominous silence, and I think, oh, no. Oh, I'm just listening. Oh, yeah. I'm listening. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, another good example, a couple of other good examples of human stories in mythologized environments would be Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we romanticize the quote-unquote Old West, uh, which apparently didn't even really exist in the way that we think of it now. That's a movie thing. Um, you know... I wasn't even that interested. I thought, uh, you know, I'm not interested in this. I don't care about that time period that much. And then a friend of mine was telling me how interesting it was. So I thought, okay, I'll check it out. So we sat down to watch it and we got completely hooked because it's such a good human story. Mm-hmm. Uh, MASH, although MASH is also a lot of other things. You know, MASH is vaudeville and it's also an anti-war story and it's, it's a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, Mad Men is another example. You know, it's really easy to romanticize the 1960s, which makes me kind of want to puke when people do that. But um, or the but God, that, the Godfather. The Godfather. Well, I'm not the person to talk to about that. I I actually think that I mean everybody acknowledges that book was terrible, right? That's a terrible book. I tried to read it. I've never read it. Um, the scene early on at the wedding, I think, won a bad sex award, but I'm not sure. A bad sex writing award. I forget exactly what that award is called. Um, just Google bad sex writing awards and you will be rewarded, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's an award for the purplest prose. <laughs> um, I, I, what I saw of The Godfather was not that interesting to me, but mm-hmm. I also have a kind of an aversion to stories about the mafia. 
I will say we went through a Sopranos phase because it was a good human story for mm-hmm. a while. Well, and that, that's kind of the, that. the point Sorry, of this. Well, the point of the Sopranos is it is a you know you're kind of delving into the psyche of this violent, horrible person. Yeah, I mean it's not. It doesn't rise to me to the standards of Deadwood or Mad Men or The Wire, which is probably the best thing that's ever been on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with The Sopranos, I, uh, at, there was a certain point where we both felt like this is just gratuitous now. And also, they didn't—they ultimately didn't take risks, you know. But I know a lot of people would take issue with that statement. It was good. I just, you know, I think there's a, a there's still too much romanticizing of the mob. Yeah. and crime in general in this country. I thought, you know, just... There's other stories I like better. Mm-hmm. But, okay, The Wire, there's another example. Um, it's Yeah, it doesn't... I don't feel like it romanticizes too much no, of the crime. It doesn't romanticize anything, but it, it, it humanizes without condoning anything. Mm-hmm. It makes no easy judgments. It just kind of it, puts it all... And that's why I really love The Wire. It's like... For my own personal life, I work in Vancouver's downtown east side, and I know how drugs are taken. I know what people are like when they're on drugs, and that's the first time where I saw something like, "Okay, that's accurate." Yeah, that's, that's yeah. not glorifying. This is this is what's going on. It's not pretty. It's also not you know like, um, what was the uh, the pot one with the guy playing the piano, the reefer madness? You know, it's like it's not these extremes. It doesn't judge and it doesn't condemn, but it also doesn't glorify. It it just shows you human beings caught up in systems bigger than themselves. It, and and it's very human and very humane. It's extremely mature storytelling. And that's something you don't get in America a lot. It's something you don't get on TV a lot, not just American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what's on TV in other countries. Uh, I, I've seen Dutch TV. It's pretty stupid. Yeah. French TV looks pretty bad, too. British TV is extremely trashy. Is it? I mean, all I see is, like, British, the good stuff, you know? You'll see, like, The Office or Extras or Downton Abbey. You know, I love Ricky Gervais. I love the original Office. I like the American one a lot, too. But Extras just made us both wince too much. It was too, (laughs) too unbearable. And Downton Abbey, okay, I've come to the conclusion that people who like Downton Abbey... Especially the English. It just makes me wonder, like, are the English masochists? Do they miss this stuff? <laughs> I haven't oh, actually God. watched it yet. It's... Oh, it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. All it is is just another masterpiece theater costume drama about the early 20th century. I don't even find those costumes that interesting. It's too in-between. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still wearing corsets, but they're not... Uh, whatever. They're don't not showy. No, but also, it just seemed like... They don't take any risks. You know, I I felt like watching it, okay, I'm pretty sure the status quo is going to maintain in some way here. And I understand that things change in future seasons, but they didn't pull me in hard enough. They didn't give me enough contrast, and they didn't give me enough real human beings. You know, it's something I wonder about, and this is totally speaking ignorantly because I haven't watched the show, is this kind of idea of representing these points in time and um, unfavorable conditions and how are we almost celebrating these types of things like these disparities of poverty um, how much are we glorifying it and not necessarily as much 
pushing against it. You mean with something like Downton Abbey? Yeah, Downton Abbey, or just... Yeah, it's I haven't watched it, so I can't I can't really say too much. I don't know, and I, I'm a bad person to answer that anyway because I, I, I don't... It's not my thing, you know, the sort of, like, upstairs-downstairs drama. Mm. It's so far away from my experience or my ancestors' experience or the kind of stories that I'm even interested in. Because not every story that I'm interested in has to do with my experience, right? Like, my nobody in my family was an army medic in Korea either, and I think MASH is totally brilliant. Um, who doesn't like MASH, you know? I just but, love that MASH is this TV show that went on for about, what, eight more years than the actual war did? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, though? <laughs> I'm guessing that if you were there, it probably felt like it went on forever. Yeah. Because if you if day in and day out you saw nothing but bodies being blown apart and coming into your clinic to be put back together, that that probably gets long. So tell me about the uh, what you're or I don't know if you want to talk about any of the projects you're working on for the future. Well, uh, I'm currently working on adapting some stories by Isaac Bashevis Singer into comics. That's really fun. Who's um, that? <laughs> he was one of the greatest writers of the 20th century okay Isaac Bashevis Singer you know his work even if you don't know his name um, he was one of the great Yiddish writers living in America he moved to the states in about 1930 so he managed to miss when the shit hit the fan in Poland um, he wrote for the foreword a lot I think when 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 the forwards Yiddish paper was still secular. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if the paper there's a Yiddish edition and an English edition, and all I know about the Yiddish edition is that I think it's only read by Hasidim, so I assume that its content is less secular. The English edition is pretty secular. Mm. At any rate, Singer wrote a lot of serialized novels for the forward, but his best work in my mind are his short stories, which are masterful. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, I think, 1968, I want to say, but I'm not 100% sure. Easily researched, though. Um, he also wrote a series of very successful children's stories, uh, which you may have come across or not, I don't know. The Fools of Helm was his big one. Uh, Zlata the Goat and Other Stories was another collection. And to me, his best work is the work that he set in the shtetls of Eastern Europe. Really, I, when when you read somebody like, I assume you've heard of Jonathan Safran Foer, mm -hmm. somebody like him, Nathan Englander, these people are treading in, in Singer's footsteps to varying degrees of success. And to me, of the writers who, I'm going to be very opinionated here and people are probably going to get mad at me, but of the writers who are really consciously working in Singer's vein, Nathan Englander is so far the only one that I've encountered who's fit to touch his coat hem. So, at any rate, um, and I love Nathan Englander. I mm -hmm. love Nathan Englander. I think he's an amazing writer. So when I say that, that's a compliment. I'm sorry, that sounds really awful. Maybe you should <laughs> that out. But I, I, Nathan Englander is one of my favorite modern writers, actually. Um, uh, and I don't mean to say that his work is like singers. I just mean there occasionally, especially in his first collection, there were stories that definitely felt a little singer influenced, and I felt like that's a really good thing. And it was actually uh, hearing Nathan Englander read one of Singer's stories on the New Yorker Fiction podcast that gave me the idea for this adaptation. I heard this story that I had never seen in print before. I just had not come across it. It's, it's out there. 
And I thought, oh my God, that would make a great comic, great short story. So I pitched it to Tablet and they liked it. So I don't know when that's going to start running, um, but there'll be a couple of those. Nice. And then the, the project after that um, isn't something I, it's not taboo to talk about it, but because I haven't started it yet, I'm not so sure it's a great idea for me to blather about it too much before I really know what shape it's going to take. Uh, oh. But it involves uh, much more historical research and time periods that nobody living was present for. So I have to do a lot of work for that. Well, I look forward to whatever it may be. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope it doesn't take me eight years. <laughs> I don't have eight years. <laughs> Unless people want to pay to fly me to Turkey to work on this book and maybe France and Germany. Why not? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? You, you, you could always do a Kickstarter. Actually, I'm considering that. Yeah. I'm considering that because I do need research dollars, I think, to, to do this. Not like I absolutely have to travel to these places, but it it's good. And, and there may be archives that I can access that I would do better over there with. or You know, just being in the environment. Yeah. There, there's something, you know that can affect how you're doing just even knowing what the food smells like oh thank god for the lower east side tenement museum <laughs> i i've spent so much time there the tour guide started to recognize me <laughs> that place is wonderful and if you ever ever want to stop complaining about the size of new, your new york apartment just go there you'll never bitch about it again when you see how people lived i mean i live in you know a little cottage in gainesville i could probably fit three or four of those tenement apartments into this house. I can I can imagine. <laughs> I uh I see how folks live in our downtown east side here and could just imagine an even yeah. more extreme situations. But that's something that hasn't actually changed very much, you know. People are still living in those tenements. Mm hmm And uh the immigrant groups have changed. The ethnic background has changed, but their lives haven't changed that much, I don't think. It's a shared experience that kind of transcends time. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to join me today, Leela. Uh, just a reminder, folks, I've been talking to Leela Corman. Her latest book is uh, Unterzaken, as well as <laughs> the uh, previous release Subway series, which you may find in comic stores that have a lengthier Shelf Which you may guess. find in comic stores that haven't bothered to pulp their old inventory. <laughs> I actually picked this up um, just last week. I saw it at Subway a local, series? Yeah, at a local comic store. I was like, oh, hey, I should God read that. God help you. No, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Leela. Thank you, Robin. It was great talking to you. Good
And bye. 